Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In honor of Native American History Month, today we're sharing a town hall we hosted recently on the battle for the American West. I moderated a great conversation which discussed Manifest Destiny, U.S. westward expansion, and the impact on Native people. And next week we'll have a discussion about the Howland against Brookine case uh, involving the Indian Child Welfare Act that the Supreme Court recently heard. For today, our guests are H.W. Brands, author of The Last Campaign, Sherman Geronimo, and The War for America. Laurie Dagger, author of Cultivating Empire, Capitalism, Philanthropy, and the Negotiation of American Imperialism in Indian Country. And Lindsay Robertson, author of Conquest by Law, How the Discovery of America Dispossessed Indigenous People of Their Lands. Enjoy the show. Bill Brands, let's begin with you. Your riveting new book, The Last Campaign, Sherman, Geronimo, and the War for America, uses the story of Sherman and Geronimo to illuminate the battle for the American West, uh, which we which began in many ways, as you suggest, with the policy uh, led by Andrew Jackson and others to re-people uh, Native Americans um, to the West, to remove them from their lands and expatriate them to the unsettled territory. Tell us about that policy and how the story of Sherman and Geronimo illuminates uh, the war for the American West. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, I actually cast the, the story a bit broader than that. I'd say considerably broader than that. What I call the war for America began at least hundreds of years before the period that I focus on, uh, at least with the arrival of Europeans following Columbus's arrival in the West Indies. But I would contend that it goes farther back than that. What I mean by the war for America was the contest to see who would exercise control over the land that would become the United States of America. And so I... The title of my book is The Last Campaign, and it's the last campaign in this long-running war. And what I'm focusing on is the period from 1865 to the mid-1880s. And I focus on two individuals, William Sherman, who had command of the U.S. Army in the West and then eventually command of the entire U.S. Army during most of that period, and Geronimo, the Apache war leader, who was the last one to surrender. And with the surrender of Geronimo, as I contend, the war for America ends in the following technical sense, that at that point, there is no longer any dispute as to who controls the lands of the American West. There had been continuous dispute before then. So what I do in my books, I try to bring together sort of the, the grand, the big history of this contest for control that had been going on for thousands of years, and the little history of the individuals who fought it out in the end. I focus on Sherman. Again. He's the protagonist on the the side of the U.S. Army and the U.S. government. Geronimo was by no means a spokesperson or a leader of all of the Native American peoples of the area, but he is a symbol and he was the last one out. So this is the story of that last 20 years of a very long-running contest. Thank you so much for that. Lori Dagger, in your important new book, you tell an unfamiliar story, which is the collaboration of the federal government with missionaries from various denominations to, as, as uh, some of them put it, civilize the Native Americans and to uh, spread American control and American values. Tell us about that surprising collaboration, which I, I would have thought today we view as violating 
the religion guarantees of the Constitution to have Congress actually subsidizing uh, this sort of work and how it very much affected uh, what you describe as uh, cultivating empire. Sure. So in many ways, the U.S. federal government was building upon centuries of precedent on the continent. The French Empire, Spanish Empire, all worked with missionaries uh, to try to um, convert Native peoples to Christianity, um, to uh, have them labor in mission spaces in on North America. Um, and so the U.S. partnering with missionaries wasn't new in North America. They were just another empire that did that. Um, and yet they did it in some, as you say, surprising and novel ways. Um, so the U.S. federal government did provide funds to missionary societies to go and, quote unquote, civilize Native peoples. And what that means is they were trying to teach, um, according to Euro-American standards, how to farm their lands. Now, Native peoples had been farming for millennia. They actually knew quite well how to uh, practice agriculture. Um, but the U.S. federal government really wanted to encourage them to farm in order to encourage the commodification of their lands. So Native people would use fewer of their lands, and then Indigenous lands would be available for settlers for the purchase. And what's interesting about this is the mission spaces themselves actually facilitated the growth of the United States, um, its territory, its economy. In order to teach Native peoples to farm, missionaries needed access to things like axes and hoes and plows, all these manufacturers that would be shipped from urban spaces like Philadelphia or Baltimore into the rural interior of the continent um, and would also encourage uh, Native people's consumerism as well as the purchase of these goods more generally. So in those ways, um, you know, these mission projects were not just religion-based as they were in previous centuries, but were actually much more focused on this agricultural education. And that's, I think, how they got away with skirting that question of religion in the state. Um, in 1819, the federal government does uh, set aside $10,000 for the Civilization Fund, um, as it was known to fund these uh, farming schools and manual labor schools. But they were not allowed to use the money for biblical tracts and things like that. It had to be for infrastructure, right? So building um, schoolhouses. Um, things like this. So that, I think, is how the federal government tried to get around that question of religion in the state. That's fascinating. And that limitation on the use of funds for non-religious purposes might indeed cast interesting light on the modern meeting of the Establishment Clause. Let's turn now to the battle over Supreme Court cases. And Lindsay Robertson, in your book, Conquest by Law, you talk about the McIntosh case where Chief Justice Marshall uh, created uh, what's called the Discovery Doctrine. Um, you wrote about this because you found documents about the case at the Pennsylvania Historical Society that had never been unearthed before, which just gave us a whole new insight into the meaning of this crucial case for our law. So tell us about the McIntosh case and what you learned about it from these documents. Sure, I'm happy to. The uh, Johnston-McIntosh case is an 1823 Supreme Court decision. It's the foundational native land rights decision uh, not only in the United States, but because it's been picked up by other former English colonies, 
Uh, it's a foundational decision in Canada and Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand and elsewhere. Uh, it's a decision which, as you mentioned, Jeff, the, the Supreme Court adopted a, a version of uh, what the, has come to be called the Discovery Doctrine, uh, which in Johnson uh, was uh, formulated to mean that upon discovery of the New World, all native peoples in discovered lands, lands discovered by Europeans, uh, lost automatically by operation of law the ownership of those lands. Uh, the underlying title to those lands became the property of the discovering European sovereign. Uh, and they retained, according to John Johnson McIntosh, a right to occupy those lands, an occupancy right, uh, which could be sold or otherwise alienated, but only to the same discovering sovereign. So they lost their land rights and they lost the capacity to deal in a property market sense with their lands with whomever they wished. The documents, which were an extraordinary thing to discover, which had been protected by uh, for generations by the Brenton family, uh, who deserve an enormous amount of credit for caretaking those documents, uh, revealed that the, the case was collusive, that it was uh, raised questions, frankly, largely unrelated to the discovery doctrine, uh, and that the doctrine itself was a creation of the court, particularly Chief Justice Marshall, to solve a totally unrelated problem, and then which had to do with land titles in Western Kentucky, but then took on a life of its own when it was seized upon by Georgia as providing a rationale for Indian removal uh, and by the Jackson administration. So it becomes the, the trigger case, the case that makes possible the forced relocation of the Southeastern tribes and all sorts of other things uh, in the various countries that I mentioned in the generations that followed. So interesting and, and really striking to learn from you how openly political Marshall's calculations <clears throat> were in trying to appease uh, Virginia, given the complexities of the forces that were operating on the court and in establishing a doctrine that he'd later have to walk away from to some degree in the, in the famous Cherokee Indian case, which I'll uh, ask you about in a moment. Bill Brands, you so vividly paint Geronimo and, and Sherman as, as people describing Geronimo's determination for vengeance, for revenge after uh, Mexican forces uh, slaughtered his wife and, and children. And also Sherman named after Tecumseh in his uh, having just come out of the battle in, in Atlanta during the Civil War, entering into what you call the last campaign. So, so situate both of those men at the beginning of the last campaign after Atlanta and tell us how it progressed. Geronimo had been engaged in his almost a personal war against Mexico and Mexican authorities because of the incident you mentioned. The Apaches had pretty much ignored any international boundary between the United States and Mexico because that boundary cut across their traditional ancestral lands. And so they would go back and forth and they, they paid little attention to whether they're on the US side or on the Mexican side. And in fact, they worked that boundary, the division, to their favor. So at least initially, when they were being chased by U.S. troops, they would cross into Mexico. And at least at the beginning of this campaign, the U.S. troops would stop at the border and they would have refuge in Mexico. And then they would raid in Mexico and the Mexican troops would come after them. And then they'd slip back over to the U.S. side and the Mexican troops would stop. Eventually, the U.S. commander and the Mexican commander agreed that they could engage in, in hot pursuit. But for Geronimo, Geronimo, the war, the war against, I'll well, call them the Americans, the U.S. forces, 
was almost sort of the last round of his fighting because he had been fighting against the, the Mexicans for much longer. And at the end of the Civil War, in fact, it was really only during the Civil War that the Apaches came up against U.S. forces in any meaningful way because that was the last part of the West that U.S. settlers or U.S. forces uh, arrived in. And in fact, at the beginning of my story, Sherman thinks that the U.S. government ought to evacuate all American settlers out of Arizona. So this is a waste of time. They're going to get us into trouble and it's going to increase hostilities against the Apaches and other Indians in the area. And it's just not worth it to the United States. So Sherman, through all of this, is very ambivalent about this whole enterprise. He recognizes um, again and again that it's the settlers who are aggravating tensions on the frontier. Sometimes it's for the narrow purpose. In fact, there's one instance where Sherman goes out on a tour of the of eastern Colorado, and he encounters some farmers there who have been making money, making a lot of money during the Civil War, provisioning U.S. troops. And when the war ends, and it looks like they're not going to have to provision troops anymore, and there's going to be peace on the frontier, they're quite alarmed. And then they so go about deliberately trying to antagonize relations with the Indians. And, and Sherman recognizes this. And he says, you know, the reason they're doing this is because they want the business of providing for our troops. So re we really ought not to let them do this. But Sherman recognized that he didn't have any control over this because the settlers had the ear of Congress and Congress was the one who gave him and his orders. So one of the striking things about this story is it's unclear at times who is making policy regarding the native peoples in the West. Uh, an, another good example is the discovery of gold in the Black Hills. And those were, it was Sherman's idea originally to give the Lakotas, the Sioux, um, a reservation around there. So to leave those forever to the Sioux, to the Lakotas. And then there were rumors that there was gold in the Black Hills. And the rumors were fanned by townspeople who lived, these are folks in towns around the edge of the Black Hills. And what they wanted was a gold rush to the Black Hills because the gold rush would bring in settlers and business and all the other stuff. So Ulysses Grant, by this time president, grudgingly agrees to send out a scientific expedition that is going to disprove the rumors of gold in the Black Hills. And it largely does. I mean, they find a little bit of gold, but initially not enough of paying quantity, except that the frontier press, the press out in the West, they fan again into this gold boom. And so Sherman is tasked with trying to prevent settlers from coming into the Black Hills. There's simply too many of them, and he doesn't have the support of Congress. So if there's one overall lesson from all of this, it's that, like much of history, it's an exceedingly complicated story. Complicated in, in your masterful account, just uh, riveting that, that that account of Sherman putting a flake in his mouth and finding that the acid of his saliva increased the luster and therefore it, it probably was gold is really memorable. Laurie Dagger, you tell us about this uh, surprising plan by Henry Knox and Secretary of State Timothy Pickering called the U.S. Civilization Plan. And the premise of this was that by working with religious denominations like the Quakers, the U.S. could save Native American peoples from extinction by civilizing them and white people's agricultural techniques. Tell us more about the 
philosophy, the, the ideology behind these plans, and, and how do groups like the Quakers implemented. The Quakers, of course, were famous abolitionists, and they used their uh, religious doctrine to oppose slavery. Did Quaker and other religious doctrine also champion the cause of Native Americans, or was it mostly used in what you call this form of cultural imperialism? So the philosophy behind the civilization plan is kind of twofold. First off, there is this idea of Euro-American superiority and that they have ability to give the gift of civilization, in, in quotes, of course, right, to Native people, and that by giving this gift, Native people will be able to stave off extinction, right? And they use the word extinction in their messages to one another, right, the U.S. officials. Um and by just settling down and learning to farm, it will be much better for Native people in the long run. This is built on the idea that all Native peoples are just wandering and hunting, right, and really false claims. The Quakers in particular um, come at this with a few different perspectives on the issue. Some are very much um, thinking that they're doing a good job, that this is the way to go, that this is how they can best help Native peoples. But even that drive to help is grounded in a sense of paternalism, right? That they know how best to help Native people and they know what Native peoples need. On the other hand, um, some Quakers, and it's always a tricky thing to get at individuals' motivations, right? I want to kind of put that out there. Some seem to do it because they want to elevate their own reputation for benevolence, for philanthropy. Um, one of the Quakers in particular becomes president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Um, so he is certainly involved in profit-seeking schemes. And, you know, it's no co coincidence that his railroad needs to go through the lands that his society of friends are working on this civilization plan with in what's now Ohio and Indiana. In terms of the mechanics of how these Quaker missionaries are actually supporting this program, the first is with some private funds. So the Society of Friends are excellent at fundraising, right? And they would complement federal dollars with their own private dollars for some of uh, their missionary work. And that was also true of other missionary denominations, Baptists, the ABCFM, and others. So public and private funds there. But they would also travel out to the lands of what's now Ohio and Indiana to do the farming education, right? To actually set up uh, model farms to model for Native peoples how they should farm their lands. And what's interesting about that is as they're journeying out to these lands, they're noting in their diaries how much corn they see that, of course, Native women are producing, right? So there's a little bit of a, a disjunction there between what they're seeing and what their goals are in the West. And the last thing I'll say is on this question of motivations and trying to get at what people are thinking when they're doing programs like the Civilization Program and engaging in these efforts to assimilate. Uh, Native peoples, it is really hard to get at what are individuals' interior motivations. And so what I really try to do in the book is say, okay, they probably have a vast array of different motivations, but here are the consequences of their work. We know very well what the consequences of the civilization plan were, and they were often devastating um, to Indigenous communities even as some Native communities were also able to use missionaries and their labor to their advantage to invest in their lands. 
um, et cetera. So there's a few different outcomes that happen. So I'll borrow Brand's take that it's very complicated, right? As history often is. It, it, it is indeed. And and the power of the book, as you say, is to, by, by focusing on consequences, um, irrespective of motivations, you help us understand what the broader impact of this U.S. policy of, of, of so-called the, the civilization plan was. Let's now talk about the consequences of the Johnson decision. You say, uh, Professor Robertson, that, that Johnson was a tragic mistake, which Chief Justice Marshall himself tried to correct in, in his famous decision, Worcester against Georgia. You say that establishment of the Discovery Doctrine was used to justify the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and that Marshall reversed his view and, and decided that discovery only supported the first rights of people to buy the land of willing Native Americans who are willing to sell, and that Marshall's decision in Worcester reversed his decision on the discovery doctrine, but it was overpowered by President Andrew Jackson. So tell us about that story of the progress from uh, the Johnson case to Worcester. So the state of Georgia borders uh, a number of tribes uh, at the time of the American Revolution, the Muscogee Creek Nation. Uh, agreed to move west uh, at a certain point, but the Cherokee Nation was still there in the 1820s in northwestern Georgia. And um, back to the, the gold theme, of course, gold was discovered in northwestern Georgia during this period, and the Cherokee Nation had made clear to everybody that they had no interest in leaving Georgia, uh, negotiated a deal in 1802 with the federal government that the federal government would make its best efforts to persuade the Cherokees to enter into a treaty agreeing to leave the lands of Georgia, but the feds hadn't really uh, followed through on that. And then the Johnson decision came down and someone in the government in Georgia discovered the discovery doctrine and reasoned from it that if the discovering European sovereign owned the title to native lands, then that would have been England for the Cherokees. And when Georgia declared independence and won it, Georgia would have acquired England's land ownership interest. That made Georgia the landlord for the Cherokee Nation. And as a landlord, they were empowered to change the lease terms. And so immediately they passed a statute uh, in the late 1820s uh, saying that from now on, uh, Cherokee governments abolished. Cherokees uh, are subject to Georgia's state law. We're going to attach the lands of the Cherokee Nation to, to a number of Georgia counties. They're welcome to stay as long as they want, but those are going to be the new terms. And in his first annual address to Congress, President Jackson said what Georgia did is perfectly correct legally. Uh, and uh, I would like you folks in Congress, please, to pass a statute uh, providing in the event that the Cherokees decide they no longer want to remain in Georgia under these conditions, uh, for their uh, swapping with us for federal lands out west uh, in what would become the state of Oklahoma, and at the time was borderlands with Mexico. The Cherokee uh, resistance was immediate and uh, followed conventional litigation path. Uh, rather than uh, declaring war on Georgia or the United States, they hired a lawyer, uh, William Wirt, who proceeded to file uh, lawsuits, a pair of them, uh, 1831, the case of Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. Uh, and when that was dismissed for lack of jurisdiction in 1832, the case uh, that you mentioned of Worcester versus Georgia, John Marshall, uh, his correspondence reveals, was horrified 
that he had given the state the doctrine to use to oust the Cherokees. Uh, and by the way, it's picked up by other states too. Uh, Tennessee and Alabama will both pass laws that do essentially the same thing for the native peoples in those states. Uh, and so he sets about in Worcester to rewrite the discovery doctrine, the, the sort of rationale for it, without overtly reversing himself. So that's something that John Marshall never did, I think, for institutional political reasons. He didn't want to confess that they had screwed up a few years earlier uh, for fear that that would undermine the authority of the court. So he simply rewrote the discovery doctrine opinion to provide now that there was a, a restriction on purchase rights, not a restriction on sale, and native peoples retained ownership of the underlying title to their lands, which sort of mooted the legal theory that Georgia had relied upon to justify its imposition of laws, and that eliminated any incentive that the Cherokees might have to accept the U.S. deal uh, and exchange their lands. Uh, it, it didn't last, as you said, frankly, because the president uh, chose to ignore it. This is the decision that prompted the pr probably apocryphal line from uh, Andrew Jackson. Well, Marshall has made his opinion, now let him enforce it. Uh, and he started negotiating treaties with uh, various of the southeastern tribes. The Cherokees resisted longest, uh, but eventually uh, people died. People uh, left the court and the majority of the justices became uh, Jackson or one was a Van Buren appointee, but they were the new majority. And we've seen how new majorities can make a difference in Supreme Court case law. Uh, was supportive of this theory and in a series of a half a dozen opinions between 1835 and 1842, they restored the original Johnson formulation of the discovery doctrine. And, and that's what we've inherited for tribes. It meant that they really did, or portions of the tribes felt they really did have to move if they were going to hang on to their identity, culture, and self-governance rights. Uh, and so we have the various trails of tears. Thank you so much for that and for helping us understand the connection between those two crucial cases. Bill Brands, as you, as you began by reminding us, you begin the book by saying that the War for America commenced early in the human history of the Americas, uh, not with the Indian removal policy that I mentioned. But I was struck by how consistent the Indian removal policy was. As you say, it began with President Washington, President Jackson embraced it as did uh, President Monroe. And I wonder if you could tell us about the influence of that on the uh, course of the battle for the West. And could things have gone differently if, if there'd been a different policy? You note at one point that if the Indians had um, been allowed to gather in Florida and the Seminole territory, it might have been more uh, geographically contiguous and, and, and less dispersed. And I, I wonder if you could reflect about the, the influence of the relationship between federal policy and the, and the peopling of America. I think it's not at all a coincidence that the evolution of policy toward the Indian tribes coincided with the emergence of democracy in the United States. And to imagine a different outcome would require, would have required essentially the American people, not simply this president or that Congress, but the American people to say, we are going to declare, let's say Florida, as you proposed, mm -hmm. off limits to white settlement. We are going to declare the Indian territory, Arkansas and Oklahoma originally. We're going to, we're going to declare the Black Hills off limits to white settlement. And that lasted 
only as long as white settlers, who ultimately ran the U.S. government, excuse me, white people, voters, uh, who ultimately made the decisions of the government, those reservations, those reserved areas were reserved only as long as the people who voted in the American government decided they didn't want them. And as soon as they became appealing, so Florida, Florida, there are lots of Florida that nobody wanted when this was first envisioned as a refuge for the Seminoles. But gradually, as the cotton culture expanded in the early 19th century, then Florida became a good place to grow cotton. The same was true of the tribes of Georgia and the other South, the, the old Southwest. Initially, Mississippi territory could be largely left to the Indians who'd lived there for a long time. But as soon as somebody figured out, that is some white folks figured out how to make money in that area, then they would importune their members of Congress. They would vote for a president who will let them in. And they would come up with various rationales for doing this. But the, the fundamental decider in all of this was the fact that the population of U.S. Americans was growing rapidly during this period, and the population of Native Americans was declining initially, <clears throat> dramatically and drastically, then slowed down, but it's still declining. So that at the beginning of my story, when it really kicks in in 1865, there's something like 30 million citizens of the United States, and there were less than half a million Native Americans in the Western half of the United States. And against those numbers, there was, there's really, to me, almost no way to imagine a different outcome. The only question was, how long would it take and what form would it take? Because the decision left for the peoples of every Indian nation was ultimately, do we continue to resist or do we acknowledge that the old way of life is gone? And it happened in various tribes at various times. So among the Cherokees, there were some who heard Andrew Jackson's explanation of the need for Indian removal and said, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to stay in Georgia. There's simply too many of those white people imposing on our territory. So let's cut the best deal we can. And the Indian Removal Act split the Cherokee Nation in two. And it was a division that lasted for decades. And the same was true in many of the other tribes. So a striking thing about the part of the story that I tell in detail is, in the case of Geronimo, in the case of Crazy Horse, in the case of Sitting Bull, all of these war leaders, they eventually surrender. And they typically are taken into custody, not by U.S. troops, but by either Indian scouts, members of their own tribe, who had decided that we can no longer continue to resist. And therefore, wisdom and the future of our people, in particular, our women and children, depends on accommodating ourselves as best we can to this tragically unsatisfactory situation we find ourselves in. So interesting. And that the reality of that numerical difference of the much larger number of, of <clears throat> white people and Native Americans, as you say, was decisive. And, and you so, in such an illuminating way, show the intersection of the constitutional, historical, and military concerns. And, and you note that the so-called civilized tribes insisted on retaining their tribal governments, proclaiming themselves sovereign nation in the states where they resided. But this was a problem for the states, I'm reading from your book, because it prevented enforcement of state laws within the boundaries claimed by the tribes. And the constitution says no new state shall be formed within the jurisdiction of any other state. 
and Jackson said that the assertions of the tribes contradicted the Constitution on this point. So um, it, it's important at the National Constitution Center to emphasize this contribution you make to the constitutional story, and it's extremely interesting to think about. Laurie Dagger, you have a powerful concept in the book where you talk about the effect of this policy of working with religious groups, and in particular, the idea of philanthropy in its double-edged sense. And, And there's a phrase that you call speculative philanthropy. Tell us about that and how it's important to your story. Sure. So I argue that um, speculative philanthropy is essentially a combination of a desire, um, whether it's performative or, as I mentioned earlier, a sense of paternalism, a desire to help others, right, to promote the welfare of others. But it's also coupled with a desire to make profit, right, either economic profit, um, acquire territory, um, or pursue this idea of moral capital, right? Which there's a great historian, Christopher Leslie Brown, who writes about abolitionism and moral capital. Um, and that's being essentially a drive to acquire social standing, right? Uh, a good reputation in society, et cetera. And some of my the Quakers and other missionaries that I follow in the story are certainly trying to acquire moral capital. Um, there's one individual who's memorialized um, in print as, you know, a wonderful philanthropist, right, in the city of Baltimore. So in that sense, again, I'm trying to think about philanthropy and, and its consequences, right? We can have these ideas of pursuing projects that promote the welfare of others, but there's often, as you said, this double-edged sword. There's this dark underbelly sometimes to philanthropic pro- uh, projects. And the term is really trying to get at those both sides, right? What are people trying to do, but also what are their many projects that are colliding with their philanthropic work? Um, and what is sometimes the harm that comes with philanthropy, particularly when it's grounded in ideas of um, white supremacy or racial superiority, right? In this case of Euro-American, white Euro-Americans asserting that they know how to live best, that they have the keys to civilization and that native people need to get out of the way. And there's a particularly uh, powerful example that I came across It's an 1830 memorial, a petition that Indiana settlers sent to the federal government asking the federal government to remove Miami peoples from the bounds of what's now Indiana. Um, And they use all kinds of language of humanitarianism, philanthropy, but then they close their petition with, and I'm paraphrasing, By the way, could you really remove them from these lands that are in the path of this uh, Wabash and Erie Canal, right? We really want those lands. So in that way, rhetoric of philanthropy um, could be mobilized in order to secure very profitable lands. In this case, canal lands that were worth a great deal of money and that Indiana settlers wanted for themselves. So that's that darker underbelly side of language of philanthropy in this case, Um, that rhetoric of humanitarianism. It could very much be wedded with a desire to make profit. You very powerfully described that double-edged sword. And that 1830 act is a really strong example 
Uh, Lindsay Robertson, just yesterday, the Supreme Court heard an important case about the Indian Child Welfare Act. And this is a 1978 law that regulates the adoption of Native American children. And it says that when Native American children are taken from their homes, they should be placed with extended family members or other Native families, even if the families aren't relatives. And the question is whether this exceeds Congress's power, violates states' rights, and imposes unconstitutional race-based classifications. So big implications also for the affirmative action case that the court is hearing at the same time. And Justice Neil Gorsuch, who's among the strongest defenders of Native American rights, as well as Justice Kagan, said this isn't a race-based classification at all. It's a political classification because the tribe has a relationship with the U.S. government that's regulated by Congress. Tell us about the case and what are the constitutional stakes? They're very large. Uh, I'll tell you about the case then. If if I may, I want to make sort of a broader point about the role of the Supreme Court in in the various topics that we're talking about. Uh, the case is the Brakeen case. It came up through the Fifth Circuit. Uh, it's a challenge, among other things, to the facial constitutionality of a statute called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which Congress passed in 1978 to, to stem uh, an outflow of Native children who were being taken from Indian country, from Native families, and placed for adoption with non-Indian families at an unbelievably alarming rate. Some communities were being almost completely gutted, Congress found, uh, when it was looking across the map, uh, their children being taken out with rationales uh, relating to, well, this community's poor, the child would be better off with us, et cetera. And so the statute was passed to provide tribes, uh, federally recognized tribes, of which there are almost 600 at this point, a role to play when their children are subject to child placement, uh, foster care, adoptive placement uh, proceedings in, in state courts. Uh, and uh, it's a complicated statute. As my co-panelists have mentioned, there are complications uh, related to the to the substance of the statute as well, but the but the most uh, I think from an from an Indian law perspective, the most important argument being made is the one that you mentioned, Jeff, which is the equal protection claim that the designation Indian is a racial designation because, as some of your viewers will know, that would raise the level of review under the equal protection clause for potentially all statutes related to Indians from a uh, rational basis to strict scrutiny and would result potentially in the gutting of much of uh, federal uh, statutory Indian law. The Supreme Court in the 70s decided that, uh, as you mentioned, Justice Sotomayor and others mentioned, uh, the designation Indian is a political classification uh, because we're talking about citizens of federally recognized Indian tribes and not people who are genetically Native American. Uh, there are different categories of people. There's some overlap, but not an entire overlap. And this, if I may, works as a, as a segue to a larger point that I'd like to make, which is so that, so that folks who are watching understand, and I may sort of riff off something that Professor Brands mentioned uh, in his opening comments, uh, that, uh, and I think this is, a, this is a common understanding that the end of the 19th century, the Indian Wars of the late 19th century marked the end of Native America and the end of the battle for the West. Uh, and I think neither is, is true. I think it was the end of the military phase of the conquest of the West, but the legislative and judicial phase is ongoing. And the Burkine case is a good illustration of that. 
uh, as is the case uh, that was decided a few months ago called Castro Huerta, uh, also involving, perhaps ironically, as Rakim does, and Worcester and Cherokee Nation, the Cherokee Nation, which seems to be a major player in these cases um, from the beginning and, and continuing. Tribes under U.S. law as recognized since the founding of the Republic by the Supreme Court are extra-constitutional political bodies. That means they aren't creatures of Congress. They aren't creatures of the state. They exist outside the constitutional framework. They just happen to share land with the United States. The power that they exercise as sovereigns is inherent to them. It's power that they exercise as sovereigns before Europeans even arrived. And so the relationship between the United States and the tribes is akin to the, the, the relationship that the United States has with France or Chile or Bolivia. They're, they're foreign countries in a sense, again, with the qualifier that they share land with the United States. And, the, and because of this land sharing problem, there have been ongoing judicial questions relating to who has jurisdiction over whom in that shared space, uh, and in some limited instances outside that shared space. Uh, and often the combatants are tribes and states. Uh, and this is, has, is occurring in Oklahoma right now, and the Castro Huerta case um, was an illustration of this, is the state and the tribes battle for jurisdiction. I think it's important to appreciate both of those points, that this is ongoing and that tribes are separate sovereigns, because it means that this is something that citizens should not only be aware of, but feel free to, to study and participate in. Um, this isn't old-timey stuff that kids learn about in school. These are ongoing, uh, in, a, in a large sense, human rights issues, and they're not confined to the United States. These are wars that are being waged by indigenous peoples across the planet. The UN adopted recent, relatively recently, a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, the first comprehensive global rights uh, international instrument relating to the rights of indigenous peoples. And, and this has sort of provided a framework for, for reassessing uh, the, the rights that indigenous peoples have within what are now called settler colonial states. Um, the last thing I want to say, and, and this is again also riffing off, I'm stealing from Professor Brands, but to riff off something that he said about democracy and conquest, I think that's dead right. And it's a, it's a perfect characterization, at, at least for the late 19th century and most of the 19th century. But I would, I would caution that, that the federal government has sort of changed its mind about this at various junctures in 1934, uh, Congress passed something called the Indian Reorganization Act that was dedicated to putting the brakes on that to sort of allow tribes a, a means of reacquiring territory through what's called the land into trust provision, where they could expand again and restore lands lot, lost to allotment in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. Uh, and then this policy reinforced in the 19th late 1970s by something called the Indian Reorganization and Education Assistance Act, and then all of the statutes that followed, including the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so we're still in a period where Congress uh, has evidenced a commitment to, again, put the brakes on that demographic expansion of non-native peoples into Indian country and give tribes some breathing space and recognition as sort of co-sovereigns sharing the lands of the United States.
Absolutely fascinating. Such a great overview of the important question, as you put it, who has jurisdiction over whom, which has such important implications for Native American sovereignty. Joyce Frey asks in the chat, what do you see the future holds for the approximately 474 recognized tribes in the U.S. for reconciliation and regaining their sovereignty as nations within the context of the U.S.? And, and you gave us such a helpful framework for thinking about the complex interrelation of congressional, UN, and tribal policy in resolving those crucial questions of jurisdiction. I think this will be our final intervention. So bring all these strands uh, together as, as you think best. But Bill Brands, among other things, perhaps you could tell us the, the last part of the story. You, you begin in, in the old warriors die section of your book. After the battle ended, you talk about how most of the war-ending treaties committed the Indians to try to live as white people, the, the efforts to nudge the Indians toward farming, which uh, Lori Dagger describes, failed, but the government pushes further. You talk about the, uh, the policy of Henry Dawes of uh, Massachusetts through the Dawes Act, which gave each head of an Indian family 160 acres. So after the war ended, what happened? And what does the riveting history that you talk about teach us about Native American sovereignty today? Well, Jeff, and I'll pick up a theme that you initially laid down, and that is the nature of constitutionalism in this territory. And, and in one sense, what I've described as this war for America is um, a struggle to determine how far the U.S. Constitution extends and who lives under it and who does not, who is exempt from it. At the end of what I call the, at the end of this last campaign, you mentioned the, the Dawes Act. Well, it was the vision of the people who wrote the Dawes Act, Henry Dawes and the people who supported it, that in essence, the Indian tribes would go out of business as separate entities. And this was, and as Laurie Dagger has suggested, there were mixed motives behind all of these things. And in the case of the Dawes Act, there were two streams that came together. One was people who really did have what they thought to be the best interests of the Indians at heart. And they looked at the failure of the Indians to be able to defend their way of life when acting as these separate entities. And so whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, they said, look, they're going to have to assimilate. They are have, they're going to have to adopt white ways. And the, the only way they can be encouraged to do this, compelled to do this, is to shrink their land holdings enough so they have no choice but become farmers like the white neighbors nearby. And I'm not in a position where I'm going to doubt the sincerity of that group of people. If there was a separate group of people who said, well, if we do the arithmetic, we shrink their lands, and there's a whole lot more for us. But the, the idea was, and to pick up on what Lindsay Robertson was just saying, the, the question was, what's going to be the constitutionalism of all of this? And there were individuals, um, some that I write about, well, actually one, Eli Parker, who was, I'll call him an assimilated, he would have been called a Christianized Seneca, who had basically said, we, we are, we're not going to live our old traditional ways. And he became very successful in the U.S. political system. In fact, he eventually rose to head the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Quanah Parker was the last war chief of the Comanches, and he fought until he decided we can't fight anymore. And then he basically adopted white ways. And so for those people who saw, what's the future of this? The future in the 1880s seemed to be, they're going to have to become like the rest of us. And then, then we can move forward from there. It didn't work out, though. And in fact, as some of the legislation Professor Robinson cited, then there was backtracking on that. And there was a greater appreciation in the 20th century for what 
sovereignty for the Indian nations meant to them. And so it became once again viable. But I will add, and this will sound pretty cynical, but sometimes you have to adopt a certain cynicism when you interpret this stuff. It was only after the Indian tribes were clearly no threat to anybody but themselves that people could adopt this view. Well, now let's try to be nice to the Indians. It was a striking thing through this whole period that the, the people in the 1820s, the 1830s, who were most in favor of being nice to the Indians were the ones who lived farthest from the Indians. So you could find folks in Massachusetts who were all in favor of Indian reform. You could hardly find any out on the frontier. And so once the Indian problem was safely settled in terms of we have what we wanted to take from them, and now we'll sort of be nice with the rest of it. That's sort of the story of the 20th century, as disheartening as it might be regarding the, the meaning of all of this. Disheartening indeed. And there, there's something very poignant. You have a picture of Eli Parker next to General Grant and the idea that of what would follow that is poignant indeed. Laurie Dyer, what are your thoughts about the lessons of the riveting story you tell about this speculative philanthropy and the uh, outreach of Quakers and others with Native Americans? What, what does that story tell us about uh, struggles over sovereignty and, and Native American status today? So I think primarily two things. The first is that um, what we now know of as the United States and all of its territories made a lot of money off of dispossessing Native peoples. Um, Indian removal, particularly beginning in the early years, could involve some nice profit for both white settlers who wanted the lands in order to build canals through these lands and for U.S. officials, right? Some of whom also had lands that they wanted to build canals through, like John Johnston, who I write about in the book. I think the second key lesson um, in this, this goes back to um, Lindsay Robert, Robertson's point, right, is that the battle is ongoing, right? Not, you know, it's in, it's in the courts today, but it's also, we can see it in events like uh, 2016's Standing Rock uprising, the protest there. Um, Native people are, are still trying to resist U.S. colonial efforts to harvest profit from their lands. And that is an ongoing story, and it's a through line from the age of European empires in North America through the age of the American empire in North America, right? Native peoples are resisting. They're claiming their sovereignty. They are defending their sovereignty, and they are making a stand to protect their lands and their peoples. You know, one thing uh, that strikes me too is that Native peoples take on a lot of different approaches to navigating this confrontation with the United States, its settlers, and the government. Some choose to fight, some choose war. Other folks choose to stay as neighbors, right? Not necessarily just to assimilate, not necessarily because they see, you know, Euro American culture as the future but because it's a tactic for survival, for remaining on their lands, for hiding in plain sight, right? And in that way, they are able to actually preserve some of their culture and their kin networks around them, right? So in some ways, you know, Native peoples are navigating this continuously today in many different ways. And I think that's another key lesson. There's a scholar who terms this survivance, thriving and continuing to be present, um, an active sense of presence. And many Native people are continuing to be very actively present. 
Beautifully put. Thank you for that. Uh, Lindsay Robertson, last word in this in this great discussion to you. What should we be looking for in the fissures about Native American law and sovereignty at the Supreme Court? The McGirt case, which the court decided in 2020, was five to four with an unexpected uh, groupings. The more liberal justices joined Justice Gorsuch in holding that the Major Crimes Act did not apply uh, for land uh, reserved for the Creek Nation because that remained Indian country and the dissenters were the more conservative justices. And yet the, these issues often don't break down along predictable lines as we saw in the oral argument yesterday. So what are the broad areas of agreement and disagreement about the status of Native Americans at the Supreme Court? Well, we're still in sort of a wait and see mode. Um, we have, as you say, just I think Justice Gorsuch has a better handle on federal Indian law than any Supreme Court justice in American history. Um, I think Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan are both also very adept and not not to dismiss the awareness of any of the others. Um, but Justice Gorsuch comes from the Tenth Circuit, which is where Oklahoma is. And so I think he has more hands-on experience with all this. Uh, justice Barrett, I, we, we don't know quite yet where she is uh, on Indian law. She's still the great unknown, although she has sided with um, for what might be characterized as the Kavanaugh wing. Uh, and we're not entirely sure where the chief justice is going to come out in some of these cases. Uh, there's a lot of backstreet projection on Burkine that it might be 4-4 and the chief might sort of fall somewhere in the middle. But again, we truly don't know. And so it's a challenging period to try and be a tea leaf reader uh, on the Supreme Court and Indian law areas. Um, but the Gert case was a, was a fantastic decision, a great win for tribal sovereignty. And then it almost immediately got flipped. Uh, and the dissenters suddenly become the majority when Justice Ginsburg is replaced by Justice Barrett in the in a couple following cases. So, so it, that's, it's a great question. It's an open question. Um, if I can sort of toss in two final, final thoughts uh, of mine based on um, stuff that Laurie just said, and there are really two points about, um, in a broader sense, about my thoughts on all of these issues. Um, one is, is, is a cautionary observation. It has to do with a dichotomy that I, I think we as historians have, um, in a sense, invented on either tr on traditional versus assimilated, that either you're Indian or you're not. Uh, and I think that discounts, and this is a point that Laurie made, the, the right and capacity of communities to make decisions about how they wanna live from one day to the next. Uh, and if I start eating Indian food exclusively, that doesn't mean that I'm an assimilated uh, subcontinent Indian. Uh, it just means that I want to try it out and it's pretty good. And some, a lot of tribal communities today will have adopted methods like university educations, um, not because they are selling out to another culture, but because they've made a decision that this makes sense for them. And of course, cultural interchange works both ways. The, the point about tribal identity is that they are political communities and they have the right as any political community to decide what their future will be and what their culture will look like. Um, their identity doesn't depend on their hanging to a sort of modern anthropological understanding of how traditional tribes worked. And this is part of bringing the whole problem into the present. The other and last thing I'll say is it's easy to uh, and natural to focus on, and it's the National Constitution Center, it makes sense on what's happening in the U.S., but I really would encourage uh, people to look at what's happening globally. I'm much more optimistic when I look beyond the borders of the U.S. I have some optimism in the U.S., 
but when you look beyond the borders, what you're seeing is the formation of a global indigenous community that never existed during the periods of colonization in the 19th century because of technological deficiencies. But with the internet, communication, Twitter, WhatsApp, et cetera, uh, you have groups that are regularly meeting on Zoom sessions like this from Southeast Asia, from Australia, Canada, the US. I'm involved in a number of sort of global indigenous rights organizations now. There are various fora, including the UN, the Organization of American States and others in which they're making their voices heard. Uh, and if you are uh, watching and you're interested in native rights, I strongly encourage you to to look for, discover some of these organizations and become involved. Um, different countries have different situations and maybe it's time to be working for indigenous rights in uh, Paraguay. You know, maybe maybe the ground is more fertile there than it is than it feels in the US now. And that's perfectly fine um, because it's a large planet. There are lots of indigenous peoples. They share legal issues and histories uh, to a greater extent than I think many people realize. Uh, and we now have the tools to make a difference in that space. Thank you for that wonderful note of optimism to end on. You're so right that the convening technologies of the internet can indeed introduce a global perspective that can really illuminate this debate, the struggle uh, over indigenous rights. And thank you so much, H.W. Brands, Laurie Dagger, and Lindsay Robertson, for a wonderful discussion of the battle for the West and Native Americans and the Constitution. Thank you for taking an hour out in the middle of your day to learn and grow together and to dig into this deeply important and complicated topic, uh, which can teach us so much about our history and the Constitution. Thank you for joining. See you soon. Today's show was produced by Tanea Tauber, John Guerre, and Melody Rowell. It was engineered by David Stotz. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell, Kelsang Doma, Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple, and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of historical exploration, constitutional illumination, and debate. And always remember the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, and the devotion to lifelong learning of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.